History on the March. Vladimir Putin's Russia is moving into Ukraine. Well, you know, I can't help but feel that the West brought this upon themselves by not shutting down this whole idea of Ukraine joining NATO a month ago when the Ukrainian president was out there insulting Putin, calling him a maniac, and then saying how Ukraine needs to join NATO. And they're still saying this. I was listening to the PBS NewsHour this morning, and as Russia is, well, maybe now, maybe now it actually makes sense. Maybe now it does make sense to pray for NATO. But I mean, does anybody really believe that NATO is going to come to the rescue of Ukraine? Did anybody ever believe that? And, you know, I look at the images. I woke up at four in the morning. I actually barely slept till seven. And then I finally fell asleep for an hour. You know, you look at the images, you see soldiers going into Ukraine and you see Biden writing his name on a piece of paper. And that, to me, is the extent of what the West is willing to do against, you know, this aggression of Russia going into Ukraine. That is the extent of it. They will do sanctions. And yes, they will sign orders that, okay, here are a bunch of weapons. I think they've already dropped them off. And best of luck to you. But the West is not like, and what do I know? Okay. I mean, I'm just someone with an opinion like the rest of us. Okay. But I don't think France and Germany and the United States and Canada and the rest of NATO are not going in to Ukraine to protect them from Russia. And frankly, they never were. Like, I don't know who needs to hear that in Ukraine. Like, this idea that that was ever going to happen. And so why this wasn't shut down a month ago, why this wasn't shut down a month ago and said, NATO was closed to Ukraine, removing the pretext, which is probably all this is for Putin. All this is is an opportunity. It is a pretext. It's like, okay, thanks. And it's like, you know, it's like this black belt judo master in Putin is facing this guy who's had a couple of beers, basically, this former comedian who thinks he can take this guy on, and he's already been pinned. And he probably doesn't even realize it. To me, this is the biggest foreign policy mistake since the Iraq war by the West. It was complete miscalculation. And I listened to Admiral Stravitas, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. The hosts were asking on Bloomberg, what does Russia want? And they didn't mention NATO once. And that's a month ago. That's all I saw out of Putin and Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, that's all they were talking about. And that might have been disingenuous on their part because maybe they knew that the West, the hubris in the West, it would not allow them to say that when, oh, that's all they had to say. And then there was no pretext and there was no reason for a troop buildup. So here we are. Gold is doing what gold traditionally does. Gold is above $1,900, nine month high. Bond yields have fallen. 1.9%, interestingly. And it's actually quite interesting, the contrast with Bitcoin, often called digital gold. Bitcoin is down 3% in the last day. So Bitcoin is still still kind of like a tech play. The way it acts, I mean, we might think the market has got it wrong, or maybe you think the market has it right, but it's acting like the NASDAQ. Let's look at the NASDAQ. 
I mean, the pre-market NASDAQ is down 2%. Dow futures down 1%, 319 points. And if we look at yesterday, down a percent. So oil spikes. We are at Brent crude at $99, up 4%. West Texas at $95.81, up 5%. And we're just getting started here. You know, you look at what's happened here. Let me get out my Google Maps here because it's actually quite interesting. This land bridge, Russia goes into Luhansk and Donetsk. And if you actually look at that on Google Maps, you're going to see that this, and again, I'm not an expert on these things, but it looks like a land bridge to Crimea. Like it looks like this is how you would start an invasion is you'd go here or another way of putting it is this is basically consolidating the gains of the Crimea that was annexed in, I believe, 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So put it this way, this Ukrainian president who is insulting Putin and demanding NATO membership, which sounds like utter madness from my perspective. I'm sure there are people out there that think that's a great idea. To me, this is utter madness that this is even considered, especially, I mean, and do you remember, did, did you hear, you know, Putin's rationale? He said the historical foundation, and we can debate uh, the, the historical relationship of R Ukraine and Russia. Now, we can debate how true that is, but we have to admit on a certain level, there is a deeper relationship between, say, Ukraine and Russia on a historical level than, say, between Ukraine and Germany or Ukraine and Hungary or Ukraine and Romania. There is a shared history here, and I'm not an expert in it. But anyway, enough of my <laughs> geopolitical musings. I hope they're, you know, interesting for people. Otherwise, I will just stick to the mining. Um, I haven't gotten any complaints yet. Uh, I am scanning the comments, you know, and actually, it's it's actually quite hilarious. The only comment I've gotten so far was, you mean subconscious rather than unconscious. And, you know, it brings us to our feature content here, which is very interesting. We have Andrea Carter, who is a master's candidate in industrial and organizational psychology. She is joining us today, and it's a very interesting discussion. And her expertise is on belonging, and, you know, I just know what people are going to think right away. Oh, belonging, here we go. Some people are going to be all for it, and some people are going to think, okay, this is just more politically correct stuff about belonging. Uh, let me help you there. It's actually not. Uh, it might seem that way when you hear that kind of language, but listen to the interview. And there is a bit of a crescendo to the interview. Like, we start... At first, like we're just trying to figure out what it is that Andrea's research is. Sometimes it's hard for academics to kind of translate what they're saying. So, you know, we start with kind of getting some clarity there. And then we start to really get somewhere, particularly in how this relates to the mining industry and the workplace. And let's not forget Eric Buckland from three weeks ago who was saying, you know, you could argue that workplace culture is the new ESG. And we saw what happened with Rio Tinto and their efforts at transparency and all the crazy stuff we heard from Rio Tinto when they started doing a study on what was happening at the company 
And what's super interesting about this and what, what I think gives Andrea a lot of credibility is she is saying at the end of the day, do not punish these companies for engaging in acts of transparency like Rio Tinto did. The temptation is, oh, look at all this junk that's happening at your company. How terrible are you and your company? And she is saying these companies that are out there engaging, doing the hard work, the risky work of engaging in transparency and seeing what's actually going on in their company, that that act needs to be applauded because that is how you change and solve these situations, not by hiding it in the dark. And again, a- Andrea goes to to Adler University, and it's almost like in that classic psychoanalytic, you know, Freudian tradition. It's about bringing things into the light. And by the way, I, I do mean unconscious and not subconscious. I did, I did a master's basically in surrealism. So yeah, so I'm talking from a, you know, when when I'm analyzing the news and looking at the manifest and the latent contents of of the news. Uh, you know, the manifest contents, the surface contents, what we see, the reasons that are given versus the latent underlying hidden, the reality, which is often irrational. Freud uses unconscious. So, but I do appreciate that comment about subconscious. You mean subconscious? Fair enough. Like, I'm glad you're paying attention and that you care. And, and we could have that debate. And that debate actually exists in psychoanalysis. Is it the subconscious or the unconscious? Freud uses unconscious. So I stick with that. Anyway, we have a very interesting show in line for you today. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Kevin Keogh, Evergold President and CEO for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Kevin Keogh, President and CEO of Evergold, and they are joining us for this week's CEO Spotlight. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Well, good to be here, Adrian. Thanks for the interest. Well, we're always interested in companies that are working in Canada and actually all around the world. It is our bailiwick, so to speak. Uh, So tell us, you're at Evergold. I understand from our discussion beforehand that you were at GT Gold before. That was taken out by Newmont. Tell us the story. Well, we're a relatively new company. We set up in late 2015. And funny enough, we parked the company for several years because we had another play on the go that was called GT Gold, the one you just referenced. And it was exceptionally strong as a prospect. We had a a really nice prospect there and we were asked to focus on it and to park Evergold. So we put Evergold aside for a bit and I took GT Gold public and we delivered a huge discovery, copper gold in uh, Northwestern British Columbia, which yes, uh, Newmont bought from us last year. They bought the whole company. So with that, dealt with, I went back to Evergold and reactivated it, and we took it public late in 2019. So we've really been uh, poking holes in the ground for the last couple of years. So that's pretty impressive. You had Newmont take out GT Gold, if I understand you right here. Mm -hmm. And so now you're focusing on Evergold. So what is the focus within Evergold? You guys have a property 
in British Columbia, I understand. Yes, we're we're especially interested in gold and silver, and we'll take copper if we find it too. But what we have and our key flagship property at the minute is one we call Golden Line. It's up in north central British Columbia. It's north of Benchmark Metals. Some of your listeners may know Benchmark or Thesis Gold. It's a well-known area, geologically speaking. And we have at Golden Line a property that ironically was also owned by Newmont way back in the early 80s when the gold price was weakening off. This was mid-80s and it was starting to weaken. So Newmont actually discovered a considerable gold-silver zone there. It's really long on surface, hundreds of meters, very broad. And we picked that property up many years ago when we were private and it was vended into Evergold. And we understood that there were some shortcomings to the work that Newmont did. And we've been able to address those shortcomings. And the result is what I think will be a very exciting play for the forthcoming 2022 drill season. So tell us about this. From the investor's point of view, what is the opportunity? Well, you know, those of your listeners who follow the early stage speculative mining stocks like our own, especially those in northern Canada and northern BC, will understand it's quite a cyclical. Our stock prices tend to be very cyclical. They go up and down with the news flow. And the news flow, of course, is regulated by your ability to drill on your properties. And you can usually only drill in the summertime up there. So we got out the door. We've done a couple of rounds of drilling at Golden Line. And our stock has been up and it's been down. And currently, it's really at its 52-week lows. It has been down for a while. You know, the market, broadly speaking, has had some difficulty uh, gaining altitude the last couple of months. I'm talking about most gold stories are going sideways at whatever level. Uh, We are going sideways, too, (laughs) at a very low level, at around 10, 12 cents at the minute. But that is a real opportunity for those of your listeners who might want to bottom fish because we do have $3 million in the till. So we're financed and we have a follow-up program coming for summer 2022, which is all about chasing the high-grade domain that we discovered late in 2021, late in the year in our last three holes of last year's program. We delivered the highest grade gold, silver, lead, zinc that we've ever drilled on this property. And it actually comes to surface between Newmont's historical drilling. So we think we have the potential to generate at Golden Line at the GL1 main zone, a very substantial resource going forward. We just need to do a lot more drilling. And that's really what drives our share price. So well-positioned for what's to come is really the message I'm delivering. Well, I think you're at the right place because that is our bread and butter, these exploration stocks that are, you know, these speculative opportunities, at least historically for this paper. Uh, So before we continue, this sounds like a polymetallic project, or is this primarily gold and silver with a little bit of copper and lead? Could you just flesh that out a little bit for us? Yes. 
It's an epithermal system, which typically is strongest in gold and silver, and that's true of what we have. There are other elements involved, and the principal ones at the current time, the principal other elements are lead and zinc. But if you're asking about rock value or potential rock value, it's predominantly or by far gold and silver. So it is epithermal. It's structurally related. We have kilometers of strike length to work with. And going back to our experience with Saddle, which we sold to Newmont last year at GT Gold, what happened with Saddle is we also had a very substantial gold-silver discovery in the early going. And what really blew that story open in terms of its scale potential was the fact that we also discovered a major copper and gold mineralized intrusion of porphyry not far from the epithermal. And the two may or may not be related, but there is that potential at Golden Line as well, because we do have, and earlier this year, we released some very high copper numbers from sampling to the northeast of where we already have our big gold-silver zone. Uh, We've also got strong copper up there. So we will see how it unfolds. But at the minute, it appears to be a really lovely gold, silver, predominant play. And it does have the potential to host, I'm talking about target scale, to host a plus one million ounce resource. At the current time, there are no compliant resources, but we feel we can get there. Okay, very good. And in closing, what's the roadmap? How do you see the next few years unfolding for you? Well, typically with these early stage plays, what we like to do and our objective really is to prove there's something there that has the hallmarks of potentially becoming a mine. Our goal ultimately is not to mine anything ourselves. You saw that with GT where we sold it to the miners, basically. Our goal is really to find and demonstrate that there is a considerable body of mineralization in the ground. And usually we will take several years to increase the drill density, drill it off, and really try to define the scale of it. You know, the volumes, the grades, put it all together and make it real for those companies that do want to mine things. So that's our goal. You can expect us to do quite a lot more drilling at Golden Line this year, next year. And we'll see where it gets us. But from a a shareholder standpoint, the potential is capital gains that could arise from the very high-grade intercepts or broad, low-grade intercepts that we do anticipate delivering quite a lot more of from, from Golden Line. Well, my favorite part of this story is that you've done it before, and that always helps. As we go here, what is the ticker? Where can people find you on the exchanges? We actually trade in Europe on the German markets, on Frankfurt. We also trade in the U.S. over the counter, but our principal trading uh, exchange is the TSX Venture, and our symbol there is E-V-E-R, as you might not be surprised, ever. Of course, people can also go to the website, which is uh, evergoldcorp.ca. I love it. Nice and simple. So ticker sign ever. And evergoldcorp.ca. Kevin Keogh, yes. President and CEO of Evergold, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. 
Well, I appreciate it, uh, Adrian. Thank you. And we'd like to thank Kevin Keogh and Evergold for sponsoring this week's episode. Turning to the website, I thought we could look at this very topical story by Henry Lazenby, Bulks Most Affected by the Russia-Ukraine Conflict. So this was written a few days ago, but let's just take a quick look at this. Trade dislocations due to sanctions, high power prices, and disruption to production facilities in the conflict zone are three major threats to the metals and mining industry due to escalating conflict between Russia and Ukraine, Verisk-owned Wood Mackenzie says in a new report. So trade dislocations, high power prices, and disruption to production facilities. The market analyst expects the impact of any sanctions to depend on the exact nature of constraints put on Russian commodities and companies. Woodmax VP Robin Griffin says in a news release, Russian trade has typically stood up well during past sanctions, noting, however, previous policies have been very targeted, often focused on individuals and specific companies. Quote, a Europe-wide or UN-led global approach would be a unique challenge, end quote. According to Woodmack, the most likely outcome of a strict EU sanctions regime would be that affected Russian-sourced commodities are redirected. A trade shift would see European demand backfilled, but Griffin expects the change to be messy and notes that there are more constraints due to quality differences. And we have a quote, Suppliers hesitate to divert tons when there is no guarantee that the sanctions will last. The price premium required to justify the shift is often much greater than a simple analysis of the change in supply and demand volumes. China's ban on Australian coal imports has provided a salutary lesson in that regard. So breaking news, really, as I read this, Germany is basically putting on ice the whole Nord Stream 2 pipeline. To me, that's the first really significant move by the West that I can see. Now, what else is interesting about this, I, I have heard the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and it's a natural gas pipeline from what I understand. I have heard that described as something that, you know, Russia needs as much as Germany. Germany and Europe in general needs the natural gas to keep the heat on in the winter. And Russia needs the money. You know, we just saw that Russia-China deal a few weeks ago. I think that was only a couple of weeks ago, right before the Olympics. So not to get too deep into this, let's just keep reading here. A Woodmack analysis of Russia's global metals and mining market supply share suggests bulk commodities would be most at risk. Russia supplies multiple commodity markets, but typically accounts for 5% or less of base metals and rare earths production or trade. This share compares to more than 15% of the seaborne metallurgical and thermal coal trades. Notably, Russia supplies Europe with almost all of its low sulfur content PCI pulverized coal injection, and 60% of its high-energy thermal coal. Australia, the only major supplier of PCI coals, has seen spot PCI supplies dry up almost entirely since mid-2021. Okay, so scrolling down a bit, we have a quote from Robin Griffin. Gas supply and its impact on the energy markets dominate fears about the impact of an armed conflict in Ukraine. All industrial activity in Europe will feel the effect of higher power prices. For metals and mined commodity markets, energy-intensive smelting is at most risk, particularly aluminum and zinc, although all base metal production in steel would feel a pinch. Just what we needed. According to Woodmac, power constitutes nearly 35% of the cost of making aluminum on average and is higher in some European smelters. And we have another quote from Robin Griffin. There are also direct risks to production facilities inside the potential conflict zone in Ukraine, especially in the border regions. The country has a long history of industrial activity and has some large production facilities across the metals and mining sector. 
But outside of the bulk sector, most production lies some distance from the border, end quote. So it sounds like there's going to be disruption. If you want to read more about that, just go to northernminer.com. And turning to our next story, uh, we have another Patricia Moore story, Prices of Critical Metals to Keep Rising. This is by Naimul Karim. And it says here, electric vehicle sales in China, Europe, and the United States more than doubled last year, according to a new report by economist Patricia Moore. According to the former vice president of Scotiabank and now independent analyst and founder of the publication Critical Metals for a Sustainable World, 6.2 million EVs were sold in the top three markets last year, up from 2.9 million units in 2020. China posted sales of 3.3 million in 2021, a 168% year-on-year increase, while in the U.S., EV sales jumped 98% to just over 0.6 million units. Sales in Europe rose 66% over the prior year to 2.3 million units. So these are significant jumps. And we have a quote from Patricia Moore, with sales likely to strengthen further in 2022, demand for critical metals will continue to climb. Greater infrastructure spending by many governments coming out of the pandemic and industrial retooling towards lower carbon operations are also boosting demand for base metals. Higher EV sales combined with strong demand for computers, cell phones and wind turbines has pushed up the prices of rare earth elements in China. The report noted the price of neodymium oxide, a light REE, posted an 89% year-on-year increase. Heavy REE terbium oxide, which has recently had taken some market share from dysprosium in permanent magnets, according to Moore, climbed to $2,260 per kilogram in mid-February. And it says here that Moore forecasts an average nickel price this year of $10.19 per pound. And that rising tensions over Ukraine as one factor might lead to higher nickel prices. Quote, an invasion of Ukraine by Russia might increase nickel prices as Russia's substantial exports of nickel could be disrupted. And she also talks about copper, saying that on the LME in 2021, average prices increased to $4.23 per pound, up from $2.80 per pound in 2020. And she described the current strength of copper prices as, quote, remarkable, given the significant slowing in China's economy since last summer. So isn't that interesting? So it's markets outside of China where copper demand is growing. Moore also noted in her report that for the first time in six years, markets outside of China posted stronger demand growth for copper than China's own domestic market. As a result, China's share of global consumption of copper, quote, may have waned, end quote, from 53% in 2020 to 51% in 2021, which would make it the first decline in 20 years. So very interesting. Then we have this story with Tesla securing a five-year lithium supply from Liontown. And this is becoming a bigger and bigger theme, which is this idea that corporations and companies are starting to make more and more deals with mining companies in order to secure supply. And this will be really interesting to see in this story by Cecilia Jamazmi, whether the price is being determined ahead of time or if it's purely about securing supply, because I think that does make a difference here. Tesla has inked a five-year supply agreement with Australia's Liontown Resources, which will provide the electric vehicle giant with more than 100,000 tons of lithium spodumene concentrate a year starting in 2024. The West Australian miner said Tesla will receive an amount of 150,000 tons of lithium spodumene concentrate for the remaining four years of the contract. The deal sent Liontown Shares up nearly 20%, closing at Australian $1.64. And here we go. Pricing will be determined by a, quote, formula-based mechanism, end quote, based off market prices for lithium hydroxide monohydrate, the company said. 
The deal with Tesla is the second offtake agreement the Australian lithium producer has struck this year after inking a similar contract with South Korea's LG Chem in January. And finally, a quote here, we now have two of the premier companies in the global lithium-ion battery and EV space signed up as foundational customers, marking a significant step towards realizing our ambitions to become a globally significant provider of battery materials for the clean energy market. That's according to Chief Executive and Managing Director Tony Odoviano. So, interesting. And finally, Glencore earmarks $1.5 billion for probes amid record profit. And this is also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Mining and commodities trader Glencore will set aside $1.5 billion U.S. to cover a series of probes into bribery and market manipulation, which it expects to resolve before year-end. The amount, Chief Executive Officer Gary Nagel told reporters on a conference call, is Glencore's best estimate of what it believes the settlement amount will be. News of the provision came as the Swiss company posted its highest ever profit of $21.3 billion in 2021. Pretty good. Profit. That's $21.3 billion in profit. Almost double a year earlier, thanks to soaring commodity prices. The company also said it would return almost $4 billion to shareholders. In the past four years, the company has been the target of investigations by the U.S. Department of Justice, UK's serious fraud office, and Brazilian authorities for alleged money laundering and corruption. I guess if you're making $21 billion, 21.3, you can put aside one and a half for any of your lawsuits that you may have. Glencore disclosed in 2018 that the US DOJ had requested documents related to the group's business in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, and Venezuela as part of a probe into possible corruption and money laundering. Brazil also kicked off an investigation into Glencore and trading groups Vital and Trafigura over alleged bribery of employees at state-run oil company Petrobras. A year later, the UK's SFO confirmed it was investigating suspicions of bribery by both the company and its staff. The Swiss Attorney General followed suit, saying the probe was the result of a wide-ranging investigation by law enforcement agencies open in early 20. The full-year results are the first under new CEO Nagel, who last year succeeded longtime boss Ivan Glassenberg. Okay, and finally, we have a quote from the uh, CEO here. Speaking to reporters, Nagel said that he was, quote, not happy, end quote, with the $1.5 billion charge, but noted that the company recognized there had been historic cases of, quote, misconduct. Quote, we have worked very hard to correct that. He said in a conference call, we are changing the culture. We want to complete these investigations, put a line under that, and move forward. So we are back to this theme that I think really is the contender to be the next ESG theme, which is this workplace culture and just company culture, because we are seeing it over and over. So maybe Eric Buckland is on to something here. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 22nd, gold is trading at $1,896.42 per ounce. That is $42 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24 even, and that is $0.62 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,083.76 per ounce. 
That is $63 higher than last week, and palladium is trading at $2,380.03 per ounce. That is $85 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny lower at $4.54 per pound. Aluminum is $0.05 higher to $1.50 per pound. Lead is at $1.07 per pound. That is $0.03 higher than last week. And nickel breaks $11. It's at $11.11 per pound. That is $0.36 higher, continuing its upward climb. And tin remains above $20 at $20.03 per pound. That is $0.02 lower than last week. And cobalt is at $32.77 per pound. That is $0.81 higher than last week. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.66 per pound. Zooming out, really nickel is the standout. Aluminum is also at a two and a half year high since we started recording these prices. Platinum and palladium looking strong and Cobalt is higher. Basically, I mean, you have the industrial metals consolidating or higher and precious metals looking fabulous. So gold around that $1,900 mark, silver at $24. So really, I mean, I think the main question is for precious metals investors, is this a time to sell or are things just getting started? That is the question, I think, and maybe for a lot of these metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Andrea Carter, who is Master of Industrial and Organizational Psychology candidate at Adler University, based out of Toronto. And she is going to be speaking on a panel at Edgemine Shift, Women in Mining. And that takes place Tuesday, March 15th, 2022, at 11 a.m. to 1230. And the uh, panel is called Exploring Points of Resistance for Women in the Mining Industry. And if you want to register for that, you simply go to shift.edgemine.com and click on the register button. And that is in three weeks. And you can learn about all the other speakers who are there. I hope you enjoy the discussion and we will see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Andrea Carter, who is a Master of Industrial and Organizational Psychology candidate at Adler University, and she's based out of Toronto. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and your name crossed my desk because there is a event, uh, Edgemine Women in Mining panel discussion that is taking place. And I see it here at shift.edgemine.com. Tell us what you're up to. What is your research? Why are you speaking at this conference? It's actually pretty exciting because for the past couple of years, I've been uh, researching belonging. And as someone who has been in the equity, diversity and inclusion field for you know 10 plus years, what I recognized was that it's a billion dollar industry. And we're not growing. We're not actually, you know, moving past a lot of barriers. And so I decided to go back and do my master's so that I would be able to look at, you know, why we're not advancing and, and what's going on. And that's really where belonging came in. Um, so 
I ended up in the mining industry more by fluke than by design. That was through contacts. I needed to get into an industry that I knew was uh, somewhat behind in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And um, a lot of the mining companies have not started governance policies and procedures uh, or initiatives that will start to move the dial on this. And so I was really fortunate to be introduced to Catherine Gignac, who at the time was the chair of Women in Mining Canada. And she became my advisor. And then Women in Mining Canada, certain board members also supported that initial initiative where we looked at a lot of the terminology and the gaps of where people were really struggling. So my first paper that was published in July of 2021, Unrealized Growth in Mining, really outlined a lot of the barriers and it talked about the factors that were getting in the way. And a lot of it came down to this collective illusion of knowledge in the fact that everyone kind of had this idea of what equity, diversity and inclusion was but nobody actually had any way of measuring it or putting behavior to it or actually being able to put governance and policies and procedures around it. So that was kind of where I started, Adrian, and we were able to put a full survey together now. It started really extensively, 13 companies and 3,508 participants participated in it. And from that data and that research, which is just about to be published, and the paper is called Belonging, the Next Metric for Corporate Governance. And we were able to find predictors for belonging. We were able to find five key indicators that have to be measured in order for belonging to be present within the workplace. And we're so so <laughs> let me finish, finish your thought, and then I, I want to get some clarity here, but finish Absolutely. your thought. Yeah, and then... From those indicators, we then started looking at the next portion of my research is to look at the behaviors, because now that we're able to identify the metrics and score it, which allows us to measure how much belonging exists within an organization, now we need to know the next portion of that, which is what are the behaviors that we can then work on with leadership through training and development, through your talent management and your workplace pipelines that will then help create belonging within the organization. So that's the, the background. Okay, perfect. So, yeah. so so let me stop you there. So if I could sort of try and summarize uh, what you're saying, it's that the industry and business in general, as well as the mining industry, recognizes that there is an issue with, say, I don't know if diversity, I don't think you've gone that far, but see, with including other groups and that the challenge is really of implementing it. And you've done some research on belonging and whether people feel if they belong to an organization and based on your research, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point here, you have determined that people don't feel that they are that they really belong in an organization. And, and now you've done some more research which shows how to actually get the leaders to help people feel like they belong. Let me just clarify two points there. So the first piece is that certain people feel that they belong. Um, and I'll get to that because that actually does have to do with diversity. So we do have uh, key predictors in belonging, which are gender, role, ethnicity, language, 
so when when we look at those four predictors, we know that when it comes to those four predictors, that increases or decreases your sense of belonging depending on the way that you identify. So if you identify as a white male within your industry, and let's say you're at a higher role than a manager, you have a more significant experience of belonging than let's say a Hispanic male, or it could be someone who is disabled, and it wouldn't even matter what the gender is. So what we were able to do was look at the factors of demographics and break it down so that we could actually look at who feels that they belong. And the reason I looked at belonging through that lens was because if we look at the typical engagement survey that most organizations run on a yearly basis, what we know is that it's only really measuring the majority of your organization. Well, if 70% of your organization mm -hmm. is male, you're going to have a very male-dominated opinion on engagement. And for those other voices, they don't get heard. And so when we look at these engagement surveys and we look at the lack of statistical analysis that typically occurs, what happens is that we have a very skewed representation of what's actually happening within the organization. Now, part of that is because if you look at our governmental guidelines, we weren't allowed to ask certain questions up until just recently. You know, you, you couldn't ask necessarily gender or disability or ethnicity on a lot of our engagement surveys until recently and until we started looking at equity, diversity and inclusion through a different lens. But now that we can, if organizations are not looking at these demographics and understanding that these demographics are also part of the voices of our minorities, which actually speaks to the undercurrent of your corporate culture. We know that there is still discrimination, racism, genderism, ableism, sexism. Those are actually on the rise across the globe. And we have all of the research to show that. They may not be these overt acts of racism or discrimination or sexism or ableism, but they're subtle and significant, and they occur repetitively until an employee leaves. And what we know is that most organizations are looking, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, how can we hire diverse talent to bring them into our organization so we can actually change our governance and transparency and we can you know, create this organization that has the principles of diversity so that we can be more innovative and we can grow more. But the problem is, is that if we don't have a culture that actually accepts people for who they are, then these people typically won't stay past 18 months to two years. So equity, diversity, and inclusion in a way has been failing because we've asked the wrong question. We've asked diverse people to be assimilated into our organization rather than simply becoming and belonging part of the organization. And so you're, you're actually having to look at how your whole talent management pipeline and and the organizational development has to change. So would it be fair to say then that these kind of surveys 
uh, say that a company will do or whomever, in effect, are you saying that they actually end up reinforcing the status quo rather than kind of giving voice to, you know, okay, 70% of people feel that way. So that's all that matters. And you're basically saying it kind of has the opposite effect. It reinforces that 70% rather than kind of going, oh, looking on the edges and saying, hey, look at what this 30% said. Is that fair? That's, absolutely. And, it, and it's what's led to more groupthink. And even more so, it's led to the increase in employee silence. And so when you look at the majority of these surveys and you look at the majority of the factors that have been put into place for organizations to start, you know, assessing their equity, diversity and inclusion, but then also just their engagement and their growth and, and really look at the, the demographics of their population, they're only really showcasing those that already belong and I think the problem that we have consistently reinforced, and, and this is a product more of the cycles of how we've been socialized, but we come from a perspective where we expect people to fit in or they're rejected or they're ostracized. And that's been, and it doesn't matter what the, the cultural element you look at is, that's been the, the way that humans have been socialized. And so if we look at corporate culture and, you know, uh, organizational fit, that model has actually enabled those majority voices to continuously be heard and to suppress those who are in the minority, which to your point, Adrian, also brings up the fact that by not acknowledging those voices, you're actually silencing them and reinforcing the negative behaviors. Interesting. So on an abstract level, this makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's interesting because I think, you know, I don't want to go into the politics of this, but I know a lot of our listeners are going to be thinking about the politics of this. But let's face it. I mean, it, it is very important. I think we can all agree on that people feel like they belong in their organization. I mean, a quick anecdote. I mean, I used to be a graphic designer 15 years ago. And they didn't really want to hear what I had to say, basically. And at that point, I realized how people just want to be heard and they want their voice to matter. And they, you know, yeah. pe they want people to care about what they have to say. And so it really matters, this whole belonging thing. Well, so can I, can I put it into perspective even more so than that? And I think that that's a really great example, Adrian, to start with. But the meta-analysis of 70 studies shows that the health risks that are associated with social isolation, rejection, and ostracization, so not being heard, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it's twice as harmful as obesity. And not only that, like I know I, I'm kind of laughing about this, but I'm I'm so floored by the research that shows why exclusion and why belonging is so important. But when you look at a lack of belonging, if there isn't belonging, it has a high association with depression, poor sleep, rapid cognitive decline, as well as cardiovascular difficulties. So when we look at the well-being of what's happening across the world right now with employees, and we think about how we're going to build back. I mean, that's been our big trend. Oh, how are we going to build back? What's our nor new normal, right? And they, these are the questions that we're talking about. You know, and, and I'm still in the infancy of this research. So I'm not going to say belonging is the be all end all. But what I will say is that if we look at all of these 
pieces that actually affect not only our health, but our well-being. And then where that leaves us as employees for productivity, for engagement, for growth. If we don't have belonging, we're actually creating more of these environments to, and this is going to sound a little bit out there, but make our employees sick. So how do we expect to grow if we're not doing things to actually help their well-being and actually create environments where they can thrive? Yeah, you know, it all kind of rings true to me. I mean, there's a kind of brutality in a sense of being ostracized. And, you know, it's almost like nature's way of, as you say, like maybe these people get sick more easier because maybe nature in all its brutality just wants to push the agenda of like the group and to, you know, those people that aren't a part of that are they're actually causing problems. Who knows? I mean, you could argue that nature doesn't like that. Maybe you disagree with that, but maybe you more agree with this, that a civilized society is going to be trying to get people to feel good. And which I consider the opposite of kind of a brutal nature situation. A civilized society is trying to bring people in and and not succumb to this brutality, for yeah. lack of a better word. Absolutely. And Adlerian psychology, the reason Adler University was the university that I chose to do this research with is because Alfred Adler, you know, he was working on workplace exclusion and, and looking at how workers who were I think it was the uh, dry cleaning industry, but he was talking about how these workers were essentially brutalized. And his initial research, which was founded at the same time as Freud's, you know, they were working neck and neck. And he had developed schools to create community-based environments that thrived. He had created work environments where community-based workplaces grew faster, had higher engagement, had lower turnover. All of these things are, are dated back to pre-World War II. And then Hitler came in and essentially, and I know I'm going a little bit off topic here, but but essentially shut all of that down. And that was what really stopped Adlerian psychology from that growth. Now it still grew. He he ended up, you know, immigrating to Chicago and and here we are, you know, <laughs> still in all of its life form. But when we look at how to start rebuilding after COVID, after Black Lives Matter, after so many events of discrimination and racism and oppression, it's historically been repeated. And so in order to end that, we have to start looking at doing things differently. And I think that's why this belonging research really spoke to me, because I didn't necessarily just look at it through the lens of, okay, what are the five factors? I wanted to build metrics because knowing that in the organization, we need to have metrics. We need to have things that we can measure our growth by. We need to have you know, benchmarking and the ability to look at how we're going to measure the change. And so when I started actually, you know, when you, you pull a thread <laughs> on a sweater, it felt a little bit in the first part of my research that it was like unraveling this, this sweater and this thread. And now it's quite interesting to see how the five metrics can score belonging and then look at where the biggest area of opportunity exists.
And I think that's the part that's exciting because while it's still in its infancy, we now have some factors that we can grow from and start making really measurable changes. Okay, and let's go there then a little bit because, I mean, it's possible there are people who are going to listen to this interview and may never you know, follow up on this. Is there anything actionable? Like what, what kind of things can people do that run organizations? Have you gotten there in your research as to practical steps? The first part of it is to actually create uh, a baseline. You, you need a baseline so that you can grow from it, which means that with the survey that we've done within the mining industry, we've now gone through the process of validating it through academic rigor. And so we've taken those five factors, which are comfort, contribution, connection, psychological safety, and well-being. And those five factors need to have a baseline measurement. And then what's interesting is that depending on what your demographic is, you can then identify, let's say psychological safety is really low. That typically means that you have a lot of groupthink, you have a lot of employee silence. And so working on that one factor, if it's your lowest factor, will actually start to make improvements within the organization. Small things that you can uh, start actioning can start with your initial uh, executive team. So when we look at the concept of, uh, in psychology, it's a really terrible term. It's called deviant behavior. It really should just be called, <laughs> you know, really should just be called somebody is advocating for a different perspective. But typically what we do is when somebody doesn't agree with the group, and there's typically one person that will say, actually, you know what? I don't know that that is what we need to do. That person is also seen as kind of the troublemaker, right? Or, or kind of the person that we roll our eyes at. Oh, gosh, here comes accounting. Here comes, you know, there's always, you know, one, one maybe department or one person who's, you know, we roll our eyes at and, and we ostracize. And we say, well, their, their content or their contribution uh, isn't as valid. And so that's how our subject matter experts end up being uh, silenced within even our executive teams. So when we look at those elements, it's starting to break the habit of interrupting those people that are putting their hand up and saying, you know what, I have a different perspective. And because we're so time sensitive right now, so many meetings are based on, okay, well, if I start at 11, I need to be finished by 11.30 and we're not going to go over. And that time construct sometimes needs to have a cushion built into it so that when you're talking about strategy, when you're talking about change management, when you're talking about your human capital, you're looking at elements so that more voices are heard and considered. And just because you don't agree with someone, doesn't mean that they are necessarily bad, because that's part of what we deem as fitting in, or that they're wrong. It's about pausing and listening and actually allowing that person to speak so that we can hear the opinion and the voice and all of the information before shutting it down. So when you look at a lot of our executive teams, we have a lot of interruptions. We have a lot of talking over. We have a lot of examples of, sorry, that's not valid right now. Let's move on. Those are the behaviors that are creating more of your groupthink and your employee silence. 
I feel like you should be giving this speech to the House of Commons uh, and <laughs> letting, th letting them know. <laughs> we got some research here. We, we think we might know what to do over here, guys. Uh, we want you to talk to wow. Andrea Carter. Well, good. Okay, so wrapping up, Andrea, now put what you just said in a few sentences. So let me try and let's see if you can add on. Or So basically, don't worry so much about the person who is being quote unquote disagreeable or who is disagreeing. In a sense, give them that time because they're going to feel better about it and it's going to create a better overall atmosphere. Perhaps, you know, maybe don't go overboard, but in a sense, you're saying if you have a meeting, make an allowance, especially with the, the group or whatever, make an allowance plan for having that extra little bit of time for when you're going to get that question that, you know, from accounting or whatever, that everybody's going to roll their eyes at, but actually give them that audience and make them feel heard. That's right. Absolutely. Perhaps. And, and it is, it's, it's really about valuing your people for who they are, for what they bring as they are, and allowing them to be heard for their authentic self. There's a reason you hired these people. There's a reason that they are in your organization. So we need to start looking at how we can enable those knowledge, skills, abilities to be recognized. And that's really the the foundation of it. Excellent. Yeah, in a sense, show appreciation for people and, and whatnot. But you, you put it better than I did. Okay, and one last thing, since you're here. Do you have a message for the mining industry? I mean, you've been researching this stuff, you know, for years. You're doing a master's at the Adler University. Do you have a kind of message that you could sum up in a couple of sentences or two or three sentences that you'd have for the mining industry of what needs to be done? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you to compress a lot into a few words here. But. Yeah, so here's what I would say. There's a lot of negative press that has come out recently. You know, Rio Tinto, we've had a couple of Newcrest presidents apologizing. I would love for people to start looking at these big pieces of information not as a way of condemning an organization or of condemning a person, but to respect the fact that they are learning and that they are being transparent to create growth. And these are the principles that allow change to occur. When we continue to cover up the minority of voices and we reinforce the majority voice, we consistently repeat oppressive structures. So uncover the voices that haven't been heard and start allowing those voices to matter. I think that's great. And it also sounds like it's a message for people who are criticizing the mining industry that if people are making the moves to be transparent, don't start attacking them. That's right. And, and I think that if we were to open up any organization in any area of the world right now, we are going to find racism, we are going to find discrimination, and we are going to find oppressive structures. And I think the thing that we need to realize is that we have a very binary way of looking at racism, discrimination, and oppressive structures. And what we think is that, oh, a, a person who is racist or a company that is racist is a bad company. Um, we are bad or we are good. The problem with that thought process 
is that it's very limiting. All of us have been socialized to look at what is acceptable and unacceptable through the lens that we were born into. And the problem with saying a company who is, you know, disclosing and showing transparency about what's going on within their organization, that is much more courageous and commendable than the companies that are covering it up or not actually even asking those questions. So we have to start looking at the lenses that we are moving forward with and creating governance around. I don't think we can create an automatic, this company is bad. And so they should be valued as less on a stock. <laughs> you know, I, I actually think that the companies that are looking at transparency, that are looking at ESG, that are looking at CSR and EDI, all of those factors, if they are being transparent, those are the companies I want to work with. Those are the places that I want to see partnerships with because they're aware of it. And while they may not have all of the parts figured out, they're actively in the process of trying to do better. So you're going to be on a panel, Women in Mining at Edgemine Shift, and that is on Tuesday, March 15th. And that is 11 to 1230. And if people want to learn more, they can go to shift.edgemine.com. And do you have a website, Andrea, that if people want to follow up or do you offer services to companies? Certainly. So my um, my new website that is really based on belonging is just called belongingfirst.com. And to do work with me, though, my partner is The Talent Company, so thetalentcompany.com. And all of my uh, contracts are based through them at this point. It helps me <laughs> divide up the research and then the actual work that I'm doing with organizations. So those are the two websites that you can go to and find me on, as well as wimcanada.org has the initial portion from my first paper, Unrealized Growth in Mining. And they have a series of five short videos that people can go and listen to about the initial construct of, of creating growth in mining through belonging. Andrea Carter, Master of Industrial and Organizational Psychology, candidate at Adler University based out of Toronto. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, another edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. Do not forget, we have the Global Mining Symposium, which starts tomorrow. Just go to events.northernminer.com. You can still register. Just click on the register button. And you can get started. So lots going on here in this turbulent world. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care. <laughs>